Well, good morning. It's great to have all the campuses together, and we want to begin by asking God to bless our time. We've been singing at the different campuses, and now we come together to hear God's word, and let's just pray that God uh, uh, blesses his word to our hearts. Father, thank you for the fact that uh, we can sing praises to you. Thank you for this gift that you have given us of singing, that from the, from a, the, the bottom of our being, we can, we can uh, let our, our praises be known to you. And we pray, Father, that you would be with us now as we look at your word. We pray that you would teach us as only you can do. We readily admit that we have nothing to say of any value unless it comes from your word. And we pray, Father, that you would take your inerrant word, final authority for life and living, and you would drive it into our souls. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see things that we haven't seen before. I pray that you would open our ears to hear things from you that we need to hear. I pray, Father, that you would keep away distractions because we are a people easily distracted. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, take that area of our heart that we have hidden, that we have hardened, and I pray that you would speak to us today. We thank you, Lord, that we can come and we can sing together and we can interact together as a community of believers. And now, together, through all of our campuses, we want to pray together as Jesus, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So we're involved in this series of sermons we've titled, Unselfie, We, Not Me. We've taken this uh, from our current day culture of the selfie, nine million selfies taken a day, but the selfie has been around for a long, long time, hasn't it? The definition of a selfie is a, an image of oneself taken by oneself, and we all have that. We all have that image of ourselves that we take of ourselves, and sometimes we paint a different picture of ourselves than what we see in Scripture. Been around our country for a long time. What could be more Americana than Norman Rockwell? And here's a painting, a triple selfie of Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell, check this out, painting a picture of himself, painting a picture of himself by looking at a mirror of himself. And that's kind of a great illustration of what a selfie really is. Our aim during this series has been to take away the focus from ourselves, our self-absorption, our self-focus, and put it back where it belongs, on our Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life that's pleasing to him in every area of our life, vertically and then horizontally with others. If we could put it in this term, we would say our purpose in this series is to get over ourselves in order to live beyond ourselves, to do the things that God has for us. So we've been illustrating it like this. 
Uh, the we is first God and me. That's where it has to start. And we want to make sure that we have a deeper uh, relationship with the living God. That's the purpose of our church, to develop followers of Jesus Christ. All of us want to be further along in our walk with Christ tomorrow than we were today, a month from now than we were last month, a year from now than we were last year. We want to grow deeper. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's where it has to start. When we are growing in that relationship, everything else falls in its proper order. That's the first we. The second we is others. We want to grow in our relationship with others. And here I just put richer. We want richer relationships as we interact with each other in our families, that's where it has to start, in our community, in our church, and the things that we're doing together. God has great things for us to do together, but we have to make sure we do them together. It starts with God and then doing it together. When I think of we, I think of a guy named Floyd Wiseman. Floyd just passed away this, this week. Floyd was an elder at our church from uh, 1996 uh, to 2004. For some of you, that will mean nothing. If you've been here a while, you know those were critical, formative years for our church. We had been meeting in the Peters Township High School, and in 1995, at the end of 95, we moved into uh, our first building. We met in a gym, a family life center, for many years, and Floyd came on as an elder right during that time. So many decisions were made during that time that allows us to be here today, that allows us to have the campuses that we have today. And uh, uh, Floyd served until uh, 19 or 2004, right before we moved in here. Floyd was a tough guy. He played football at Carnegie Mellon. He played both offense and defense. He always said, when men were men, before they had masks on the helmets. That's when I played. He even tried out, uh, he had an opportunity to try out for the Steelers, and he decided not to do that. He was a mechanical engineer. He and his wife, Jane, were married for 65 years, 65 years. They had three kids, 12 grandchildren, 13 great-grandchildren. And when we think of we, we think of the shoulders we, we stand on, right? And we look at each other because that's how we develop in our relationship with the Lord. And we'll talk more about that next time. We've also looked at our life with Christ like this. Uh, we have in this series started out with our relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this perfect relationship uh, with God, man communicating with God, man and woman, Adam and Eve communicating with God, and then the fall. Genesis chapter 3 is where sin enters into the human race. And so we have fallen. We've separated from God. We can't do anything to bridge the gap. We can't do anything to fix that separation. We can't do anything to fix ourselves. On our best day, with our best effort, we fall far, we fall far short from God. And so because we couldn't get to God, God came to man, and he did that through Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins, all of our sins, our past sins, the sins we'll commit today, and yes, we will, and the sins we commit tomorrow. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And when we trust in him alone, not as one way or, or one of many ways, not as, not, not as a good way or one of many ways, but as the only way to have a relationship with the living God, then 
That bridge is, 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 is built across from man, sinful man to a holy God. The, the gap is, is brought together, and it's only through Jesus Christ that we can have a relationship with the living God. When that happens, we are a child of God and will forever be. Think about that. Nothing can separate us from God's love. We will always be his child. Always. Nothing can separate us from his love. And then we begin this, this life, and we've seen this many times. It looks like this. It's kind of up and down until we reunite with God in heaven, and it's just like the, the paradise lost will be regained when we get to him in heaven, with him in heaven. But along the way, we, we, got, some, we got some challenges. We stumble. We fall. Sometimes we go through some really difficult times. So what we want to talk about in the rest of this series is this part right here, this, this life with God. What, what do we do when we sin? We're not going to lose our salvation, right, as a believer, if you're a believer. But the relationship, the fellowship is broken. There's an estrangement there. So what do we do when we sin? How do we get back to where we need to be with God, our Heavenly Father? So we've been looking at Psalm 51 to help us answer that question. What happens when a Christian sins? What happens when a Christian falls? What happens when a Christian falls hard? How can a Christian recover? Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51, and we're going to continue our study through this psalm today. Uh, you'll see at the beginning of the psalm, there's a superscript that says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We talked about this last time. Real quick, this is uh, 1 Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, the men are out to war. David, for some reason, stays in Jerusalem. He looks down from his roof. He sees a young woman bathing. He's attracted to her. He sends messengers to find out about her. He learns her name is Bathsheba. She's married, and she's married to Uriah, who is one of his mighty men. David doesn't care because you know the pattern of sin. He saw he wanted, and he took, and then he hid. David takes Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He has Uriah, her husband, killed. He brings her in, and he lives like that for nine months at least because the baby is born. And then God sends Nathan the prophet to say, David, what are you doing? And it's at that point that David says, I've sinned against God. I have sinned against the holy God. And then he writes Psalm 51, a, a prayer for forgiveness, a prayer of reuniting with the heavenly Father. Last time we saw three things. The path of forgiveness begins with an appeal for God's mercy. That's David's first prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. Grace is the gift that God gives us that we don't deserve. Mercy is what God doesn't give us that we do deserve, what David had done, we'll see later today, is uh, guilty of death, punishable by death. He murdered, he coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, he lied. Five of the Ten Commandments, boom, just like that, punishable by death. And David's got, saying, God, please spare my life. I'm begging for your mercy. But he doesn't just beg for mercy as he would before a tyrant. He is before his heavenly Father. And he says, according to your steadfast love, according to this covenantal love that you have for me, a love of commitment, you love me like a father, I know you do, and I'm pleading for you on that basis. And because of your steadfast 
uh, are your abundant mercy. Last time we saw the root word there is the word mother's womb. Uh, intimacy, warmth, care. What could be more protecting than a mother's womb? And David said, because of those two things, based on those two things, please forgive me. The path of forgiveness, we said, is paved by God's character. And we also saw the path of forgiveness desires a fresh start. We'll see some more of that today. What I want to do is just go through the rest of the psalm and offer some observations as we go uh, through this. Here's the first one. The path of forgiveness causes me to own my sin. The path of forgiveness causes me to own my sin. Look what David says. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now, let's wait a second. It wasn't for a while, right? David had hidden it for a while, but now Nathan has come. Now conviction has started. Remember the process of repentance? First conviction, then confession, then change. Now conviction has come, and David says, I know my sin. And the first thing he does, he owns his sin. In the Hebrew, this personal pronoun, my, is the first Word of the sentence. David is emphasizing my transgression. Transgression is the word rebellion. God drew a line and I stepped over it. In David's case, he dove over it. God, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do my thing my way. And now David says, I was wrong. My transgression is always before me. I know my sin. I acknowledge what I have done. Why is that so important? Because it is in our nature to what? To rationalize, to blame somebody else, to dismiss our sin that it's really not that big a deal. I mean, other people do worse things than me, right? And David says, you know what? I sinned against God. This is my sin, and I own it. And until we own our sin we're not going to find the forgiveness that God offers us. Secondly, another observation, the path of forgiveness acknowledges that all sin is against God. This is critical in understanding forgiveness. David prays against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. And so we say, well, whoa, wait, time out, David. What about Bathsheba? You used your power and your influence to entice her into your bedroom. Wait a minute, David. What about Uriah? You had the guy killed. Wait a minute, David, what about Joab, your commander, who you made complicit in the murder? All that's true. <clears throat> but David begins where we have to begin. Regardless of who else is involved in our sin, first and foremost, our sin is always against God. Now, why is that important to understand? Well, two reasons. First, it's a biblical truth. God's the one who says, you don't covet another man's wife, David. And so when David covets a man's wife, certainly it impacts Bathsheba and Uriah, right? But first, it's God's law that David breaks. God says, you don't commit adultery. Now, other people were involved in that, and that impacted their lives. We'll talk more about that next time. But first and foremost... It's against God. Whatever our sin is, whether we think it's big or we think it's small, by the way, it's all sin. It is against 
the holy God. And that's important. Secondly, because when I accept my sin is against God, I can't blame others. That's what God did with Adam and Eve, remember, in the garden? Who, who told you, Adam, you were naked? Well, that serpent came, that woman you gave me. She's her fault, and then it's the serpent's fault. And then God said, no, time out. I'm the one that told you not to eat the fruit. It's not anyone else's fault. We love blaming other people. So David could have said, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. I mean, come on. She's out bathing in the middle of the afternoon. She enticed me. It's Uriah's fault. <clears throat> if he had just been a man and gone and slept with his wife, all this would have been covered up. It's Joab's fault. Did he really think I meant what I wrote on that piece of paper? He should have covered for me. He should have known I was overreacting. We love to blame other people, don't we? It's my husband's fault. I mean, if you live with that guy, <laughs> it's my wife's fault. Seriously, if you lived with her, you'd be doing the same things I'm doing. It's my kid's fault. And most of the time it is our kid's fault. But that's another... <laughs> we'll talk about that in the parenting part of this. That's a whole other deal. I am joking. It's not our kid's fault. It's the school's fault, it's my boss's fault, it's my coworker's fault, it's the system's fault, it's the culture's fault. If she, if, if she hadn't Snapchatted that to me, well, then I wouldn't have responded like that. So it's the church's fault. How many people are not here today in any church? Because something happened 15 years ago, they got mad at. And they said, that's the church. I'm not going back. So they won't worship God because of something a sinner did to them. The path of forgiveness demands an unnuanced acknowledgement that my sin is first and foremost against God. That comes from a heart of humility. It only involves God and me. When I take care of that, then... I can take care of things vertically. Again, we'll talk about that next time. Here's the next observation. And here's a tough one. This is a hard one. The path of forgiveness accepts the consequences of sin. The path of forgiveness accepts, accepts the consequences of sin. So David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now check this out. So that... You may be God, you may be justified in your words. Whatever you say, you are justified in your words. And whatever judgment you bring on me, you are blameless in your judgment. That's a tough one. God forgives sin. And there are consequences to our sin. If I murder, can God, can God forgive a murderer? Yeah. Might you go to prison for murdering someone? Yeah. Can God forgive an adulterer? Absolutely. Does it wreak havoc in a relationship until trust is built back? Yeah. Does God forgive a reckless word? For sure. But then it hurts another person. 
Two passages here, Galatians 6 and 7. Paul wrote, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. God set, the, God set the standard. He's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're also going to reap. There are consequences to our sin, and we need to be just as, as aware of the, of the consequences before our sin as we are adamant about forgiveness after our sin. 1 Timothy 5.24, I love this passage. For the sins of some are conspicuous. Man, the sins of some, they are just exposed as they go to judgment before them. They beat them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Maybe nine months later. Maybe a year later. Maybe ten years later. But they always come about because what we sow, we reap. If you chart the book of 2 Samuel, in our, in our Bible study methods, we, 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 we talk about charting a book. <clears throat> so you can, you can kind of take a book and you can break down the chapters and look at all the chapters and see how they, how, they, uh, how, how they transition and how they come about. Well, you have chapter 1 and then you have chapter 24. If you chart the book of 2 Samuel 11, chap, chapter 11, where David commits adultery, that's, that's like the hinge part of 2 Samuel. Uh, up until uh, chapter 11, man, things are going great in the kingdom. David becomes king. He, he unites the king. He's crowned king. He unites, after seven years, he unites the kingdom together. He wins every battle. Man, things are going tremendously. But then there's chapter 11. Is David forgiven? Yep. But man, does he pay some consequences. His son, Am Ammon, rapes David's daughter, Ammon's half-sister, Tamar. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, kills Ammon. Absalom has to run and escape for killing his brother. David finally invites Absalom back Absalom incites a rebellion in the kingdom where David has to run for his life and then Absalom is killed in battle. And there's even something that happens more drastic than that right from the beginning. Turn to, um, turn to uh, first, Second Samuel rather, chapter 12. So Nathan goes in, right? And he says, David, you're the man. You, 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 you sinned, and David says, I have sinned against God. And then Nathan says in verse 13 of chapter 12, uh, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Remember, David did something that was, was punishable by death in that day. You're not going to die. But then look at verse 14. This is tough. This is forgiven sin, but this is tough. Nevertheless, because of this, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. You have looked God in the eye and said, I don't care about you. I'll do what I want anytime I want to do it, God. You've utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you will what? Die. That's tough, isn't it? Forgiveness accepts the consequences of sin. What does that look like in real life? What did that look like in David's life? Well, check this out. I'm just going to read this to you. At the middle of verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. 
And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So check this out. David is on the ground. He's not moving. He is fasting. He won't eat. He won't clean up. They try to get him off the ground. He says, get away from me. And then, verse 18, on the seventh day, that went on for six days. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? How are we going to tell him the child is dead? He may do harm to himself. But when David, verse 19, saw his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. And then look what David does. Now his heart's broken. He knows he's the cause of this. But look what he does. He rose from the earth. He washed and anointed himself. He changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. I wonder what he said during that time. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Now his servants are confused. Now, time out. When the child was alive, he wouldn't even get up off the ground. The child's dead, and he's eating. David, what are you doing? In fact, they ask him, David, what are you doing? The servant said, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. Verse 22, David said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I thought, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. I was praying that God would reverse that consequence. I was, I was praying that the child would live. God said that's a consequence, but I was praying that God would change his mind. But now he said he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. By the way, this is a great passage of babies dying going to heaven. I'll sh I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, that's not hard-heartedness. David's heart's broken. He knows what he's done. But he says, I can't change it. And I accept the consequences of sin. That is so important. Because many times when we sin, we don't want to accept the consequences. But that's part of forgiveness. It's hard. We're forgiven. God's going to help us through that. God's going to repair some things that we broke, or he can. But we have to be able to say, God, your judgments are right, and your words are true. Path of forgiveness accepts the consequences of sin. Here's another one. The path to forgiveness is a desire for cleansing. Look at uh, Psalm 51, 5 and 6. Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Does that mean that, uh, does that, mean that, that, that David's mom and dad, there was something going on there that was improper? No. That is a verse for original sin or what some people call inherited sin. We are born sinners. We don't become sinners because at some point in our life we sin. We sin because we are born a sinner. But look at the tension here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I had this original sin going on. Behold, <clears throat> that's true. 
And behold, something else is true. God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, you want me to be obedient. I don't want to be obedient. <laughs> Anyone ever feel that? Detention. And I blew it. So, God, I'm asking for you to do some things in my life. I'm asking for you to, um, to purge me with hyssop that I will be clean. Uh, hyssop uh, was a plant, a leafy uh, shrub, and in the religious ceremonies, they would take it, and, and when they sacrificed an animal, they would have the blood of the animal, and they would dip the, the hyssop in the, in the blood, and then they would sprinkle it on the altar. So here David is praying for that sacrifice that God would provide for forgiveness. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. His bones really weren't broken, but when you go through confession, you go through guilt of sin, it's heavy on your person. It's heavy on your physical body. David's saying, I, 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 I want to be restored. I want the joy again. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. I need you to cleanse me. A prayer of cleansing, a prayer of forgiveness. Here's the next observation. The path of forgiveness, and this is so important, a path of forgiveness includes the desire for renewed strength to obey. Remember, repentance, conviction, confession, and then what? Change. We don't want to do that again. We don't want to live like that again. And so we see in verse 10, David says, create in me. You are the almighty God. You are the creator of the universe. Recreate in me a clean heart. God, I want a fresh start. I want to start all over. I can't do it on my own. I can't fix my heart. It is broken. Only you can fix it. Create in me a clean heart and renew. I had it at one time, but I lost it through my sin. Renew a right spirit in me. Give me a spirit of obedience. I desire to live a life that pleases you. Now, David then has an interesting part of his prayer. Cast me, cast me not away from the presence, your presence, nor take your Holy Spirit from me. We have to stop there. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came, right? And the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. If you're a child of God, if you've trusted in Jesus, the only way to have a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And he will never leave you. Never, ever, ever. You're a child of God. God is your Father. The Holy Spirit comes, and he'll give us everything we need to live a life that pleases him. The Holy Spirit will never leave us on this side of the cross. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on certain people at certain times, for certain reasons, would empower them sometimes and lead them. They always came to the kings of Israel. But remember Saul, the king before David? He was imprudent. He was impatient. He, he, he was rebellious, and he never asked God's forgiveness. He always wanted to look good in front of people. And at some point, God said, enough, Saul, and he took his spirit from Saul, and David saw that. He saw Saul without the Holy Spirit, and David is saying, God, please don't do that to me. I know I deserve it, but please don't cast your spirit from me. Restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. I need you to give me the strength to obey. I can't do this on my own. Uphold me by your spirit. Uphold me with the willing spirit to obey you. That's my prayer. That's my desire. Next observation, the path of forgiveness leads to thanksgiving. I love this part. Look at verse 13. David says, God, if you do this, as always, I'm indebted to you. And if you do this, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I will go to people and I will say, I have a father who forgives. I have a father who can take your greatest sin and his grace will trump it. I have a father that you cannot out sin. David said, look at me. Pretty big sin. Pretty serious sin. And if you forgive me, God, I can go and I will, I will teach others of your great forgiveness. And I will teach others of consequences prior to their sin. But God, I want to be, a, I want to be an instrument of telling others of your great grace, your great mercy, and your great forgiveness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. By the way, this word blood guiltiness is sin that deserves death. David knew that. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. I'm going to sing. I'm not going to sing just a little bit. I'm not going to sing silently. I am going to sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I'm going to let people know that you are a God who forgives, that you are a God who restores, that you're a God who recreates, that you're a God who renews, that you're a God who upholds. I'm going to sing that loud and I'm going to sing that clear. I'm going to sing it with my life, and I'm going to sing it with my words. Forgiven sinners ought to be those who sing the loudest, shouldn't they? Forgiven sinners ought to be those who are adamant about singing praises to God. So um, some of you know my... Uh, we have four kids. Our oldest daughter and her husband uh, moved back into this area. My son-in-law is a, um, a pastor, and they served in Indiana, and they moved back. And uh, Josiah, my son-in-law, is serving at a great church uh, in the North Hills. Uh, he's a director of the young adults there. And so on Friday night, uh, Mackenzie was home, and uh, our other daughter, Laura, came in. And, and so we went up uh, to Brittany's uh, house in the North Hills, and and this church that my son-in-law uh, is in, they had a, a worship night uh, put on by the young adults. And so we went up and uh, we ate together. And Josiah was already there because he had things going on. And, and uh, we ate and then we went to this worship night. And I'll just say from the very beginning, it was, was fantastic. It was great. But I didn't handle myself so well. First of all, we got there late to Brittany's house, and I only got to eat half my enchilada before he had to leave. That's a bad start. <laughs> and then we went, and we were late. We're late getting to the, there. 
And I went in and I started checking things out. They had this great, beautiful chapel area. And it was packed, but I thought, eh, I think more people come to our worship night than, than here, actually. And I was looking around the room, checking it out. And, and I saw someone on the stage and said, I don't think we'd let our people wear anything like that. And one guy was doing something and he was distracting me. And I thought, yeah, if that was at the chapel, I'd be writing a little note right now for Monday morning. And then, and then a, um, a young woman got ready to sing a song, and she introduced it, the song she wrote, and I thought, oh, great, she's writing a song. What, you know, how good is this going to be? <laughs> and it was a great song. And it was a song about forgiveness. And it's like God hit me upside the head with a two-before and said, are you here to critique or are you here to worship? Are you here to evaluate the songs? Or are you here to sing loud praises of forgiveness? Because you're a sinner and you're showing it right now pretty clearly. And you came here to worship. Let me ask you the same question. And by the way, it was a fantastic night of worship. Fantastic. And I went up afterwards to say, that song that you wrote, can we... Could we sing that at our church? Let me ask you the same question. When you come to worship, are you here to critique? Or are you here to worship? Song's too fast, song's too slow. Song's too loud. Song's not loud enough. Song's too old, song's too new. I, I was with a friend this week, and, and uh, we were talking about worship, and he said, man, I got... Here's what I like. And so we got in his car, and, and he put on a, an Alan Jackson hymns of the faith. And he and I were listening to it, and said, I love that too. But I think we're the only two that would really like that. <laughs> so what do you think? Are you here to critique? You see, are you here to worship? When we're forgiven... We should be worshiping, right? You can sing any song you want, anytime you want, all week long. You pick it. But we can't sing everybody's favorite when we come together. But we can worship God. Bad theology, we're not going to sing that one. But we want to sing these together. You see, the path of forgiveness leads to thanksgiving. And when we're serious about think forgiveness, and when we understand that, that Jesus paid the penalty for these sins, Jesus paid the penalty for my critical spirit, that's not something to just to be flipping about. When we understand that, then we say, God, thank you for who you are. One old commentator says this, sin seals the lips of testimony. Sin seals the lips of testimony. And so when I sin, my, my, my lips of praise is sealed. When I do something I shouldn't do, 
My lips of testimony is sealed. And that's like that all over the community, right? When you go into the grocery store or wherever you are, people are watching. As a believer, you're not anonymous. You know, don't yell at the cashier and then go get in your car with the fish symbol on the back. Sin seals the lips of testimony. One more. The path of forgiveness <clears throat> begins with godly sorrow. I, I love the way uh, David ends this because he ends just where he started. 16 and 17, David says, man, our God, if it, it, for you will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it, you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. If I could go sacrifice a goat, or sheep, or calf right now, and you'd be happy with that? Man, I would do that in a split second. That'd be easy. But this is not easy. The sacrifices are, of God are what? A broken spirit. Remember? Conviction. Confession. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, a remorseful heart, God, you will not despise. If you go through the religious ceremonies, if you just go through the religious stuff, God's not going to listen. But David says, when you come with brokenness, when you come with remorse, when you come to me and say, I have sinned against heaven and you, my heavenly Father, then God says, come on home, arms wide open. We want to look at verses 18 and 19. We'll, we'll catch those next week because that's kind of moves it to more of a vertical and then we're going to talk about that next time. But what I'd like to do now is um, I'm going to have uh, Susie and some of the worship team come out and uh, sing a song, lead us in a song. I picked this song, so if you don't like it, just send me a, <laughs> send me a note. We're going to hand it off to the, uh, other, uh, to the campuses at this point. And Susie's going to come and <clears throat> sing this song over us. Reflectively, sing it over us. You can look at the words. You can listen to the words. But just allow this time to be between you and God. Man, we are so busy. We are so hurried. This is just a time to reflect. And ask God, God, op open my eyes to see what I'm missing. Maybe you're in that place where David is and you're living with sin like he did for nine months. And today's the day where God says, boom. You're the man. You're the woman. Maybe you have a sin that just is habitual and you are just battling it all the time. Today's the day you say, I am convicted. I confess it. And God, I am going to, by your spirit, by, by your help, I can't do it on my own. I've proven that. But I'm going to change. I'm going to put some stuff in my life to change. God, open my heart to, to see the, those those hidden, hardened parts. And when Susie wants to, then she can encourage us to, to join in with her. Father, do your work now in our hearts, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.